0: Hi everyone, this is Opera Omnia. We're in Season 1 and this is Episode 5. We are currently looking at the films of the mighty Ben Wheatley. Slowly working through them, one a month. Sad to see that this journey is now plummeting towards the end of his filmography. And trust me, no Uh, one is... I know, dude, no one's more more upset and aggrieved by this situation than I Well, we can find out if someone else is. My guest, my co-host for this entire season is uh, a talent who will not be surpassed by anyone else. I've decided. Uh, and now that I've Aww. said it, and now I've said that it it's been recorded, that makes it law. I think that's how <laughs> podcast law works. It's ratified. <laughs> what we're fine now. People are going to do hard time over it. Um, yeah, he is uh, just an incredibly talented and articulate young man, regardless how old he actually is. I kind of know, and I won't say it, because I want to... I just want to keep that a mystery. Part of the mystique. Uh, is my good friend, Mr. Watson. How are you doing, buddy?
1: <laughs> well, that's quite the intro there, my friend. Thank you, thank you so much. Buddy, I am happy to be here, my friend. Recording Opera Omnia with you, sir, is truly... I mean this. Truly one of the absolute highlights of my month, dude. I, I mean that, man. Can't wait to get into this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, because this one... Is maybe his biggest budget movie um, that you would think on some level would mean it's his most accessible movie, and uh, ah. I would I would say it's his least accessible movie to date. And I'm putting in a field in England in that category here. Ooh. Cause, okay, yeah, how about that? Yeah, I'm, just, I'm putting my cards on the table right now. <laughs> this one is. This one is an exercise in in full blown nihilism, and you have to get on board with that uh, pretty quickly. Um, yes, you know, indeed. Whereas in the other movie, there were shades of light. Maybe uh, there ain't much light coming through these clouds, so we we will we will get into it with with much gusto. Um, when we come up to our review, before we get to that though, um, yeah, like I say, we are we are slowly hurtling down the path of of concluding this season. Um, still to go though, uh, a couple of a couple of crackers still left for you out there. Uh, Free Fire is the next movie, which is it can be any any different than High Rise if it tried Um, which kind of makes me excited to cover it and then after Free Fire we close it out with a movie that was ostensibly made for kind of TV in the UK and it will be interesting to see how that goes because in a lot of ways it mimics down terrace Mm. Just, just minus the guns. Um, so yeah, as happy it a happy new year, Colin Burnstead. As the last one. So yeah, that's that's what's on the agenda. But this is the movie right now. High Rise is the one where people are like Wheatley's stepping up. Look at this, Tom Hiddleston, Luke yeah. Evans, Jeremy Irons, Elizabeth yeah. Moss. I mean, James Purefoy. Like the cast listing for this, Sienna Mil- Miller as well. The cast listing for this is. Fucking ridiculous. Yep. And the only thing more ridiculous than that is the story behind this movie. A passion project of a producer who spent uh, 40 years trying to get this movie made. Um, it was made on the 45th anniversary of the book being published. Um, is that right? Yeah. J.G. Ballard is not the most accessible of authors to have his work kind of tackled.
1: Yeah, and I'd heard that there were attempts to adapt his novel, because that was a 1975 novel that Ballard had written, and I guess there were attempts even in the 70s to try to get it going, but nothing was successful until Wheatley you know stepped in but you're saying that this producer was trying even back then yeah so he bought he
0: bought the rights right back then so he bought the rights as soon as they were available and I did not know that yeah and the 70s (laughs) the name that was attached to do it was Nicholas Roge who would obviously do Don't Look Now so yep which That's right, yeah. makes 100% sense, you know what I mean? That's the guy you have to make this movie. You have Nicholas Roge, because he's, he's art house, he's, you know got a, a very specific style of making movies, and that feels like a perfect fit, and it fell through pretty spectacularly, and he continued and continued and continued to try and get made. In between that, he bought another... One of Gigi, But because of course you, it's like Pokemon, you've got to have them all. Um, he bought another one, uh, which did get made some so, uh, some 20 years, I think, after it was published by a certain director, you may have heard of him before, uh, David Cronenberg. Uh, oh, David, interesting, huh? Yes, David Cronenberg directed Crash, which outraged critics absolutely everywhere, which is also based on a J.G. Ballard novel. So, oh, okay. So, yeah, huh. same author. Uh, once again, not the most accessible material for making no. a, a <laughs> Hollywood hit, as David Cronenberg quickly found out. But the other names, like linked to High Rise, are the likes of Richard Stanley, who had threatened to come out of retirement back in 2010 to do it, um, and that fell through. Uh, Nacho Vigolot, no, not, not Vincenzo Natale, uh, director of Cube. Yeah, he, was, he was he hinting that in fact, he, the, that project went quite far with him. Once again, I can kind of see why, that in a weird way, that makes sense. Um, and then it fell through, and then somehow, it ended up with Ben Wheatley. And to be honest with you, it always kind of felt like it could have been a Ben Wheatley, even though it was written many decades before. Mm. They the found the right guy for this, in my opinion, um, because Wheatley lends himself so easily uh, and you can see in all his previous work to just this overbearing sense of dread, this inevitable dread that will will just consume an entire movie and its cast. Uh, it's kind of what Ben Wheatley does, as he's 40. Yep. You know, like, like what, what special abilities can you bring to the project? Oh, well, I'm pretty good at origami. In my spare time, I read 16th century French poetry. You're a good guy. <laughs> what about yourself? Oh, unrelenting nihilism. Excellent, excellent. You, you will go far. Um, so, you know, like, it's, it's, on that, it's on that level and it makes me very happy. But it's storied, past. The thing that confused me this week, sitting down to watch it for the first time in a couple of years, uh, was this movie's five years old already, which is just a, a scary reminder of... Like, I asked Ben Wheatley a question at the q for this when it played in Glasgow and got a T-shirt. Um, and yeah uh, I asked a question and I prayed to almighty Satan that my question was not met (laughs) with one of those pithy answers which he does, like Ben Wheatley's a great guy but if you ask him a stupid question you get a very sarcastic answer Um, and I was fucking petrified (laughs) Yeah, absolutely (laughs) absolutely petrified and he started getting a bit snarky with me until he then asked for clarification on my question because of the mm. way I worded it. And then when I articulated a better way, he was like, oh yeah, and then went into it straight away as if it was nothing. And I was like, phew. <laughs> what What did you ask him by chance?
1: Um, I, or, or do we need to wait for that?
0: I No, no, I, it wasn't anything about the film analysis. Oh, gotcha, okay. I had basically said in, in a world that he'd existed to thus far where the actors he had worked with were not necessarily seen as A-list stars, so thus things like uh, entertainment magazine and, uh, like, Mm. Total Film, and that may not necessarily be banging at the door. How did he handle, you know, um, the kind of press and media... For this movie knowing that with a cast listing like this it was going to be attracting attention from the start um so oh, okay because a good question. I, well I thought so and no one else had asked it so I thought this this could be quite interesting And what he originally and uh, kind of took away from my question in which we had to kind of clarify was mm-hmm. um how how did he feel the pressure of working with bigger named actors? Uh, which yeah. is uh, once again, I think, is not a bad question to ask. Um, and uh, he was like, "All oh, right, you mean about all right the media? All right, yeah, um, no, that's completely So he it was like, uh, <laughs> he, he was kind of joking about the fact that when he was reading in uh, in, in Total Film uh, or stuff like when people were talking about his project being in production, um, that the every every single one was just a you know. Wheatley, director of the extremely weird art house project, Field in England, or, you know, Wheatley, who uh, is this, you know, dark horror director, and he's like in a yeah. few comedies and all the rest, of, like they would focus on things which didn't necessarily cover the breadth of his work. So almost kind of, like the perception of High Rise going into it was this was going to be a horror movie um, because okay. of Wheatley's Past. He'd, he'd come off the back of making essentially three horror movies. Uh, yep. You can argue the the humour aspect in, uh, in Sightseers kind of loosens it slightly to make it like a full-blown horror movie. It's definitely a, a horror comedy, but you know, you can't argue that a field in England and Kill list are straight out genre horror movies. Mm-hmm. So the assumption was, you know, High Rise will be uh, you know, a horror movie. So it was all Tom Hiddleston, you know, yeah. in a horror like all this sort of stuff. And he just found it like very funny because even the the one-line descriptions of um the book by J.G. Ballard, which is not a particularly easy book to read. Trust me, I have read it. it is... Oh, I was going to
1: ask about that. How is the source material, oh. uh, you know, how, how does it, How how is the adaptation overall, I guess? Yeah,
0: I mean, the adaptation, I think, is, it's a, I mean, it, it takes some, I, I, when we get into the review for sure, I'll point out, okay. like, like differences, Go. which I think a lot of people struggle with with the film adaptation, where it does appear so, like, it doesn't answer things that the book answers, or it, mm. it makes it, it jumps to things that um, the book, you know, takes time to get to get there. If you know what I mean. Um, but gotcha. yeah, the, I mean okay. the novel itself is bleak as fuck. I mean it is a social uh, critique of a you know mid seventies era UK politics and capitalism, and the anticipation of what would be essentially the thatcherite um uh, prime ministership in the country and, and you know it set like the, the writing of this happened during the time period of the power outages in the UK which is why they feature so prevalently in this in this movie uh, where yeah. put, like and, and the, the you know like it, it was a, a, a to say there was turmoil in the streets of the UK there's a reason bands like the sex pistols were birthed out of the UK in the 70s. Right, oh, you know sure. what I mean. Like, there's a lot of anger, and that's where I think sometimes people, because this is not a popular. Movie. <laughs> this is not. This one was like not critically panned, but uh, this is this is the fifty-fifty movie. Fifty percent of the people that saw it really liked it. Fifty percent really don't. Um, and I think there's a there's a bit of, there's if you know UK history, there's a. There's a where I was saying it, you don't need to know UK history to watch a field in England, you kind of need to know a little bit about it to understand the full impact of what's going on in High Rise specifically sure. from its from its setting. So I think you know from his position, like he was he was tackling a a project which was considered unfilmable uh, with all these big A-listers who you know the media considered this as being a failure before it even started you know they were anticipating the train wreck before it came out and then you know it's it's not what they expected it to be because it's not a horror movie and yeah like like seeing all that unfold um was quite amusing to me like like to watch it because i saw it in a in a screening with the director present and it finished, and um, he got a standing ovation. <laughs> so, oh yeah, you yeah, got like a standing ovation from Glasgow. Uh, so, but then I know that it played, it played. I think uh, in Toronto was where it, it debuted, and apparently mm-hmm. half the critics like walked out during it. So oh no, it can happen. man. Not every movie should be for everyone, and we've said it from the start. With Wheatley, he he kind of marches to the beat of his own drum, and you know, you're either on board with that you feel that rhythm or, you know, it's off time. Uh, oh, you. indeed. that I
1: That's Wheatley for you, which is why he's great for, you know, what I presume, you know, with this not being familiar with the source material. But if this is indeed in the spirit of that type of dystopian social satire, then Wheatley's the perfect man for the job. And what you were talking about with, you know, critics being divided and an audience is being divided. Check this out, Duncan. I read <laughs> a short review just this is like little couple paragraph long review from theglobeandmail.com. And the <laughs> author's opening line was this, Duncan. Yep. <laughs> Here's the opening line. A doctor dines on a dog, a supermarket becomes a trash-filled wasteland, and a posh penthouse is turned into a hotspot for costume orgies and the occasional horse. <laughs> So if that <laughs> peculiar bit of prose right there doesn't exemplify this movie to a T, then I don't even know what we're doing here, Duncan. <laughs> yeah,
0: all, all of that happens. <laughs> all of that happens in this movie, and wonderfully so. Um, I think we just get into this, man. What we'll do is we'll, Let's do it. we'll, we'll take a, like a break so people can hear the trailer. But when we come back, uh, we are we are getting, as the Scots would say, body and a bit of high rise, that means balls deep for for everyone that isn't so much, Um, which is a sexual innuendo. How dare I! It's getting steamy up in here. Right, we are going to be right back right after this. For all its inconveniences, Lang was satisfied with life in the high rise, ready to move forward and explore life. How exactly he had not yet decided. I'm so sorry. I'll survive. I thought you were empty. I just moved in. You're an excellent specimen. Why don't you come up later and have a drink? You don't know how things work around here, do you? I'm a fast learner. You built all this all my energies to this time but I am the architect of my own accident is that a horse probably on the 40th floor your husband appears intent on colonizing the sky and who can blame him when you look at what's going on at street level how's the high life prone to fits of mania narcissism and power failure <laughs> the same charges as the top floors we want our fair share of the power things would be better if we could afford to move to a higher floor I think we should be prepared to meet moderate resistance the ones who are the real danger are the self-contained types like you perhaps you're right what are you doing what are you doing in there Teething problems. The building's still settling. Doesn't it seem odd that a man can fall from the 39th floor? And not one police car turn up? Where's the sirens? What have you got there?
1: A kaleidoscope.
0: What can you see through that thing? The future. Welcome back. So yeah, we're here to discuss High Rise. You've just heard the trailer. This one directed by Ben Wheatley, based on the J.G. Ballard novel, adapted to the screen by Amy Jump, who, like we've said before, works on all Ben Wheatley's projects because she is Ben Wheatley's wife. So yeah, hey, uh, yeah, that's you know, and and that continues on. And I'm telling you right now, she's fucking super talented at what she does because I've yet to see a movie yes. where I did not like the script. Like it's tight and on point and she knows what she's doing um, sit down in your comfy armchair and let me regale you with a cast listing for this and see how right. far we've come in the space of like a year uh, Tom Hiddleston Jeremy Irons Sienna Miller Luke Evans Elizabeth Moss James Purifoy Keely Hawes Peter Fernanda for Fernando, <laughs> I think that's not right. Sienna Gilroy, Rhys Shearsmith makes his return here. Enzo um Augustus Prue, Dan Renton, Skinner, Stacey Martin, Tony Way. The the list goes over, but it's a who's who of E list stars and British actors to to boot. Um, the synopsis there there was several different ones I could go with on IMDb. I did not really like much of them because the the one that comes up as a default is, and I love this: life for the residents of a tower block begins to run out of control. Oh, full does stop. it? Yep, full stop. That's, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if I can deal with that one. So uh, let's let's just let's swing into this one, which I did I did enjoy quite a bit. Uh, it's the unnerving tale of a life in a modern tower block running out of control. By modern, they mean in the seventies. Within the concealed walls of an elegant 40-storey tower block, the affluent tenants are hell-bent on an orgy of destruction. Cocktail parties degenerate into marauding attacks on enemy, that's in quotes, floors, and the once luxurious amenities become an arena for technological mayhem. In this classic visionary tale, human society slips into violent reverse as the inhabitants of the high-rise Driven by primal urges, recreate a world ruled by the laws of the jungle. That, hey, ladies and okay. jets, is how you fucking do a synopsis. Right on. <laughs> I feel oh, that. Whew, like that. It takes some liberties. We'll get to those liberties. Um, I suppose we should approach this one in a way which kind of puts the caveat at the start here that... This is a two-hour movie, so it's the longest that Wheatley's done thus far. So it's a two-hour movie. And essentially from the what, the 45 minute mark? Realistically, maybe the 40 minute mark, things descend. There's yes, chaos. They do. And then the movie doesn't really come out of that downward spiral. For the rest of the time. So if you are a person (laughs) who... And I I will also stress, not that I like to necessarily overly spoil things. If you're someone that likes a sunnier disposition in your movies... Or a nice kind of, well, that's a happy ending. um, High Rise is not the movie for you. Because whilst at the end of this, our central character seems to be content... We could argue, and I imagine very successfully, he's also lost his mind. So, like, <laughs> sure. So, I think at that stage, uh, the idea of happiness as an ab- abstract kind of conversation, uh, we have to we have to sit down and uh, and first look at the character himself. Who is distinctively, and this is I think the biggest criticism about High Rise is that our protagonist isn't exactly, um, how, how to put this, proactive in doing anything to help a situation or impart any of his personality into a situation. Um, and I would like to counter that argument. Just up front oh, okay. here by saying that is specifically by design because Yes. Thank you. Yeah, Lang is the the eyes in which we are supposed to see the high rise through. Like and it's interesting because like when you think of the high rise as a building, and the conversations here were, were a bit weird. For the like, when they talk about specific class warfare and uh, and stuff in here, like the instant kind of knee-jerk reaction is to think of like something along the lines of Snowpiercer. Uh, the you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but Snowpiercer's on a train. <laughs> I
1: have Snowpiercer as a bullet point, just like I just wrote. It's not Snowpiercer. Yeah,
0: it's like, <laughs> and the reason it's like kind of not Snowpiercer per se is that. Like if you look at the class structure of Snowpiercer, you have the extremely affluent at one end, and the you know the desolate and poor at the other mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. This high-rise building doesn't have any desolate and poor. Like the people, Duncan. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for this.
1: I, I, you, we are tracking completely right now. I, I please go on. Please yeah, go on. The
0: people on the the people on the lowest rung here are what you would class as lower middle class. You know, they're occupied and, oh, and like, I, I love mean, it. Like, Luke Evans is a camera operator, you know what I mean? So he's working in television. Well, granted, he, he works as, like, he's controlling a camp, but he, so he's working in television and a job which pays quite well, well enough for him to live in this high rise with his wife and two children and one on the way. So he's doing okay for himself. Um, yeah. And Lang, <laughs> Lang, who is that? we follow the movie basically start with Lang moving into the high rise. It's already built and it's filling up with tenants. Lang is what I would class as kind of upper middle class. So he, he is he has a he's a mm-hmm. doctor. He has a proper profession in the you know the medical sciences, uh, and you know, and he goes in on that level. But by the class listing at the top and very expertly portrayed. In this movie, in some scenes where you just want to grab characters' heads and smack them. Um, (laughs) You know, like he is still at a level where, you know, he is nowhere near the top. Um, And I I love that aspect. It's kind of like when I see the criticism about, well, you know, it's this, you know, devices conversation on class warfare between the working class and the, the elites. And there is no working class in this building. The closest you get to, even the, like, put it this way, right? And I'm jumping about the place, but I'm going to bring it back in a second. Yeah, There, yeah. there is a scene where there is a slight faux pas at attending a swarie. And where, <laughs> I'm trying to use the words they're using. Uh, Hiddleston shows up in his best kind of three-piece suit. But yeah. when he arrives, yeah. they're all wearing kind of Amadeus era
1: yeah, like looking like some proper aristocrats up in this bitch. Yeah,
0: powdered wigs, the powder on the <laughs> yeah. face, all the rest, prancing about the place, the chamber music, and he is kind of taunted and laughed at for his lack of understanding and ability to fit in. And then he goes across and gets a drink by the waiter who serves him, who is clearly upper-middle class because of the way he speaks to them. You know, you've got excellent form in the gym. So you're like a, a yep. clearly a very, very articulate, very intelligent character who to the elites in this building is seen as nothing more than a bellhop. Um and that I I I, I distinctly love, but I think that adds to the confusion of the class structure in the building. Like, no, like, if you, this is not a case of anyone can live in the high-rise. You need money to live in the high-rise, which by default means you're not the poor. You know what I mean? You have to be at a, a certain level anyway. But when you get into that level, how you're seen by the people at the top is, is you know, is very different. It's very, very, very different. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to just clear that up here.
1: Duncan, yes. you you've set my brain on fire, dude. Mm. You you've I have a few bullet points here, nothing crazy, but just 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 some just some brief things. And you've you've touched on the whole of everything I have thought about and just my bullet points here. And if if you, can we have a dialogue very quickly about because I want to talk about the underlying themes here and the the. The notions of class warfare mm-hmm. that you just brought up. But mm-hmm. I wanna, can we focus on four characters for just a moment and bounce between them? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay, one of the things I found most curious about this film, Duncan, was there are few, if any, redeeming characters here. Oh, no,
0: there are not. Right? Everyone <laughs> oh, no, yeah. Is,
1: yeah, everyone is either, you know, committing violence in one form or another, be that outright murder, sexual assault at one point, or just some good old fashioned beatdowns, or else if they're not doing that, they're cheating and betraying one another and you know even if a character isn't doing any of those explicit things what they are doing is willingly facilitating and embracing this place's inherent chaos and mm-hmm. so you you already touched on this but i completely agree with you that as far as protagonism is concerned there are no righteous characters here who rise above the turmoil to expose it for what it really is like the only ones crying out about the rotten state of things These are the same people keeping that rot alive and well. And so I want to talk about four characters. So I'm going to kind of give my thoughts on one of them. Then I want to hear yours. And then we'll move on to the next. Is that okay with you, Duncan? Of course, sir. Of
0: course, sir. Great.
1: Okay. So I want to start with Wilder. Okay. Mm. He intrigued me to no end. So I I would say, I I could be wrong about this. Because what I'm going to say about Lang in a minute, just my bullet point has a couple sentences about him. But I would say, if I had to make a guess that the character of Wilder is... Probably the closest thing to a a, a straight up uh, uh, and I'm using air quotes here, but it it, it is it is legitimate. A, a protagonist yep. that the film offers us, even though he's not the story's front and center central character. And regardless of that, though, he seems to be the one who most desires to upset the balance. Like when he just beats the ever living hell out of one of the more upper class tough guys at that party. Who, who was that, Duncan? I um, the, the the guy that he. Beats around. He just, yeah, Luke Evans just beat the hell out of him.
0: Isn't that the, isn't that the, is it Cosgrove, I think, maybe? Yes, Cosgrove. And so, and then, so
1: when he does that, when he just beats the hell out of that guy at the party and everyone's just like, well, you know, we'll just let that happen. And then when he brings the children to the swimming pool, right? Mm -hmm. He's the one making that journey from the bottom to more or less, to the top of the high rise to get answers and spark that revolution that, I guess you could say, has already been sparked in one way or another, yeah. and we'll talk about that in a bit, but he very well could be the most fascinating character to me in the film, but, but, <laughs> despite the more or less sane approach that he's taking, as Lang had put it, Wilder isn't any nobler for this, dude. Like, he commits violence. Some of it is satisfying, like that beat down on Cosgrove, mm-hmm. and some of it's not that satisfying. Like, you know, when he violently you know, beats the hell out of and possibly sexually assaults Sienna Miller's character in the third act before oh, yeah. heading on up to the top floor. You know, I mean, like, so, okay, he does that, but so even if he is the sanest one in the building, he's no less an agent of this um, brand of institutional chaos. So, Duncan, what do you make of Wilder?
0: Yeah, so, like, Wilder, like, as, as probably we saying, like, to me, the MVP of this entire movie is yeah. Luke Evans. I think he is fucking incredible in this movie and it's a a, kind of stark reminder of how good an actor he actually is Um, he tends to get cast a lot as these kind of tough men or you know like he's some weird fucking casting actually for for him and I I was never a fan until I saw him in this movie and I was blown away by his performance I think he's incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're right Wilder for all intents and purposes sees the building for what it is So he sees the, very, very quickly through conversations, sees exactly the issues that are at hand here. There's a conversation with one of the kind of the caretakers of the building where they're talking about the loss of power and he, you know, the the caretaker says something along the lines of, well, um, if you people at the bottom didn't, you know, you know, cane the the, the electricity, then there would not be power outages at the top. You know, if you just go yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Wilder's there's like response, uh, is listen, we pay exactly the same for the electricity as they do at the top, so we're entitled to use it as much as they are, and so, so he understands very very quickly the setup. Um, and he is like you see He is the, the 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 anarchist tool for change. In a lot of respects, I think he represents that that kind of punk mentality. Of he is at times complete chaos. Um, yeah. And at other times, like what will we'll kind of focus in on an achievable goal, um, set his mind to it to try and like overturn the apple cart. You are completely right, though. As a as a character, though, for all those like redeeming qualities uh, of, of trying to you know level the playing field for those at the bottom his methods of doing it are yes. like absolutely <laughs> horrific at times they are <laughs> uh, he's got a, a wife played by Elizabeth Moss who is pregnant with the third child she is clearly clearly um mentally unbalanced she's she is depressed oh, yeah. she, very much so and he shows zero interest in fact if anything he spends more time um, in the company of Sienna Miller's character, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and, and people like uh, Kelly Hawkes' character, and you know, like any any woman basically in the building, he he, he spends most of his time there, kind of almost shunning the attention of of someone that actually needs care or looking after the family he should be looking after. Yeah, um, he's putting his his almost his. Uh, Political opinions ahead of those he should be looking after, uh, well which, said, is, which yeah. is yeah, which is essentially his biggest flaw here. But then he is amongst a, a, you know a high rise tower of people who are obsessed with their ego than they are with doing necessarily the right thing or looking out for anyone else. And um, everyone's in that same boat. It just it just so happens that the majority of people that will see a film like this. Will be able to assume some sort of uh, empathy or sympathy with Wilder as a character because most people aren't as rich or as well off as a royal is. Um, yeah, right. You know what I mean? We'll most, get to him. Yeah, most of them aren't that way at all. So yeah, like his his um, violent outbursts, and I mean like. In fairness, like, at times there's a there's a whole protracted scene where he is, like, beaten within an inch of his life and wheeled outside yep. the building in a shopping trolley, <laughs> Thrown um, out. <laughs> yeah, and with the trash, out with Wilder. Um You know, but, like, so there's a lot of him getting his revenge there, but he's had a wildly unhinged character who, interestingly enough, is rewarded at the end of this movie by overturning the, quote-unquote, head of state... By yes. himself being head of state, yeah, yeah, being executed. So there is a reason that Jeremy Irons' name is royal in this one. Oh, we you will, I mean? buddy. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> we will
1: touch upon that when we get to him. He's he's our last character. I wanna I wanna talk about here. I I love your assessment of Wilder, and I agree that I agree with that. Yeah, I guess he would be the the one, despite his despicable, <laughs> quite despicable and dark mm-hmm. acts, that he would be the one that. I guess an audience member, a normal, a normal nine to fiver, I guess you could say, would would hone in on. But so, but so, so let's let's get into the next character, and you already honed in on this. You already talked about this, but Lang. I want to talk about him because mm-hmm. Duncan. It seems as though now this was my first viewing of this, but it seems as though the film wants you to see Lang at first as the story's protagonist, but he himself admits. <sighs> That he's more or less built for this kind of chaotic system. In fact, he thrives there, as I think Wilder tells him. Like, you thrive here. His character arc has nothing to do with upsetting the balance like we see with Wilder. Instead, it's all about embracing the institution no matter... You know, how luxurious or decayed it becomes. and Exactly, in fact, like Sienna Miller's character. Mm -hmm. So when they end up together at the end, it's not this like enchanting climax where the boy and the girl finally (laughs) get together. Will they? Won't they? What a riveting romance here. You know, I can't, uh, you know, uh, I'm not what what they call that uh, shippers, I guess, you know, where they want people to get together. No, it feels like two morally bankrupt people have found one another amidst the fire. The blood, the death, and the utter pandemonium. And they belong together in this hellhole because they like hell. But (laughs) speaking to Lang himself, though, before I ask you what I have to ask you, I suppose his role, like you you, you said, I don't suppose it. I know it. His role is to be that new pair of eyes Mm -hmm. at this place. And that makes for a good portal that we as the viewing audience can look through to get a sense of what's going on here as his view is more or less neutral. For those at the top and those at the bottom, but I find it strange that he's our leading man given that he represents the type of person who rather than fighting, you know, this unjust system would rather pull up a chair and join the party. So what what do you make of Lang as a protagonist or maybe maybe that's the wrong question? Is he is that even his role in the in the story? What do you think?
0: So Lang, Lang is the, the exact middle of the social class in this one. So he comes in directly at the middle where on some level he can completely relate to those below him and also can completely relate to those above him. Uh, he has no real like desire that. to, I think, increase his so- social status. He tries a couple of times, but even when he's dejected, it's kind of more seen as humorous from his side than than anything else. He, he yeah. doesn't like being kind of slighted in the uh, in a kind of rude way. So when his his student um, who passes out earlier on in the movie, uh, <laughs> you know, is also an occupant of this building as well. And you oh, know, I didn't if, catch that? Uh, yeah, he's I, I, if, if I'm unless I'm mistaken, I think he's the one that is overtly rude to him. Um, in the the scene where they're having the the, the party the kind of uh dickensian orgy um, oh, okay i think that's the same. i might be wrong but i think that's the same actor um, okay. and as a result it's like the like the tables have turned so to speak and that <laughs> you know in the school environment he holds a social class which is above his student but in the high-rise environment, actually, uh-huh. the, the the stature of their class is what holds one person above the other. Um, that character essentially does a nosedive into a car about the halfway mark. Um, so... So you've got, I think Lang's purpose in this movie at some level is it's exactly what you said. He comes in at the, like, there's, this building's already pretty much occupied. So some people have already got, like, stories and roots that are planted in this place that he can start to observe through his interactions with people what the the politics, what the the structure, how things work, essentially, in the high rise. That being said, Lang as a character is maybe the most dangerous and volatile out of the lot. um, Oh, go go on, yeah. How about that? At a a, a a, a kind of mere hair trigger, he will, in fact, go very, very, very violent. He adapts to the chaos very much, like you said, with ease. Like, like the, the fact that we're talking about embracing the chaos is is you know i think it's interesting because his his work essentially is all to do with the brain and psychology and analyzing how the brain works and whatnot and very much like we'll, we'll get to <laughs> we'll get to his comparison with a character like royal in a second but um you know, he is a character who, uh, whilst understanding how the brain works and how feelings are developed and how, you know, uh, empathy works in terms of the lobes of the brain and whatnot, has none of that. He is, the, on some level, Ooh. the Patrick Bateman of this entire high-rise block. Because Holy he is, shit. He's, well yeah, said. He's, he's essentially a husk. He's a shell of a human being that... That's why he can interact with everyone. And it's interesting because the longer people spend time with him the more they start to see that there isn't really much there except when it comes to the Sienna Miller character who like you said it becomes like at the end it's a marriage of convenience between those two even though they're not married uh, uh, Yeah, like yeah it, it is essentially... Two people that will, by their very definition, survive. So that, that's the, the, the key thing is survive no matter what is happening, uh, no matter what the cost, they will survive. And they they have found at the end of this that their survival is kind of together. Um, but, you know, for yeah. a fact, all it takes is one power shift and you know either one of them would happily turn on the other um, oh sure absolutely I, I, I love that aspect about the movie so is, do I yeah because like on a, on a just pure superficial level it's all well he got the woman at the end and he's alive and he seems to be doing okay but when you hear what he's narrating once again very similar to how Patrick Bateman narrates the end of American Psycho mm-hmm. he's fucking mad he's, he's 100% lost it he uses the term i'm going to finish eating the dog and then you know that isn't that is a (laughs) sentence which when you think about it which i'd like loved it i I can't i can't quite remember it's been a few years since i read the book i can't remember if that is actually in the book it wouldn't surprise me if it was but there is a part of me that thinks on some level maybe brett easton ellis read high-rise um, oh, because there is a whole dude. section in that book where, uh, and in the movie, where Patrick Bateman is trying to feed a stray cat to mm-hmm. a vending machine uh, to a, yep. uh, an ATM. So, ATM, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, like there there are parallels there for for sure. But Lang is like he's the most vacuous character in this, and because you as the audience are given to him as, right, this is a guy who's moved in and we'll follow him through. I can see why that's unsatisfying for, for people that like that like a hero in a movie. Because you you pointed out, and you're right, there is not one likable, nice, ultimately stable character no. in this high-rise. That, at all. I mean, the closest you get to someone that is kind of maybe pure is Helen, uh, played by Elizabeth Moss. But even then... Yeah, she, she cheats and she's you know yeah, you know right. it's like well okay yeah, <laughs> she, you know yeah yeah the, the the idea of the she she clearly loves her kids um, yeah she but does there's also levels of potential Munchausen by proxy in that she won't let her kids go to school because she has this you know, like terrifying fear of being alone um, so there's all these things bubbling under the surface so there isn't no a likable character but Lang kind of is the guy you've got to stick with because he's he's your eyes. And yes, that's that's he- what's kind of terrifying about the movie in the second <laughs> half is Lang clearly has a disconnect in the second half with his psyche. All the stuff that he's been managing to kind of hold on as the the pillars of what makes a rational scene uh, and you know operational member of society snaps at the halfway mark. and when that snaps and he embraces full on the chaos that comes after that, very difficult to hang your hat on that hero.
1: Exactly. And even the the idea that when they call for him to lobotomize Wilder, first off, he doesn't want to do it. But second of all, just the mere fact that he's like Wilder's definitely the probably the most sane person in this building. Mm-hmm. and And he says that knowing what that sanity and what Wilder's, I guess, mission is, but still like being like, oh, that's not me. That yeah. is a very interesting thing for, I guess, our hollow uh, quote main character, who I guess we, I guess it's good that he's hollow, so we can, as a viewer, can inhabit him to walk through the high rise. But so I, I want to talk about another hollow character here, mm-hmm. uh, and and I want to talk about Charlotte, played by Sienna Miller, and actually, Duncan. It, it's very funny. I had something of a surprise when I watched this. When I saw Sienna Miller's name in the credits, I I had I was mistakenly thinking of Sienna. How do you say her name? Guillory or Gilroy? How, how do you say her name? Guillory. G-
0: Anyway. Oh, yeah. Guillory. Guillory? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Her of Resident Evil fame, who, if I do say so myself, makes for a stunning Jill Valentine. But upon looking at IMDb right before we hit record today, I noticed that, yeah, she was in this movie as the famous actress lady, and I didn't even recognize her. But so that was kind of funny to me. But regarding Charlotte, okay, played by Sienna Miller, there's no two ways about it. She might be beautiful and got to say, stunning lady. But homies, she's she's. there's a reason she belongs with Lang. Like, aside from maybe her kids, this woman doesn't give a damn about anyone there and and comes off as... Downright unhinged, my man. When during hers and Lang's sex scene, they're getting it on and they're doing all that stuff. It's hot and heavy. We get a little, you know, for those people who are so, you know, who focus on this, we get a little, a little, little, little boobies. We do. And uh, <laughs> a boobie, one, one. All she's willing to talk about is Lang's sister's death. Yeah. And you know, and he doesn't seem to mind it either. No. And, and, and you know, they're still okay. I, I would have, you know, come up from downstairs because you know that's number one mission. Watson's got to go down there, try yep. out the try out the merchandise, get things going. And I'd be like, I'd pull my head out and be like, wait, homie, what? But anyway, so, okay. But, you know, then she's in Lang's apartment, man. She rips the photo. And by the way, I find it strange that he never unpacks through the whole thing. Yeah. I, but, I, anyway, uh, that's, that's something that <laughs> i I've, Anyways, so she, she goes into his essentially just, you know, boxes everywhere. He's not unpacked a single thing except a lawn chair. And this one picture hanging on the wall she, of him and his deceased sister. She rips the photo off the wall there, looks at it, casually throws it to the ground like it doesn't matter to her because I don't think any matter anything matters to her but her own self. And, and this is not a great lady here. And unless I'm mistaken, Duncan, maybe you can set me straight here. Mm-hmm. I can't say that she was even all that shaken by her own sexual assault. It's almost as though even that didn't matter much to her. And what does that say about a character? And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that because she's awful... That she deserved what happened Mm -hmm. or that she had a great time with it or anything. She's like, yay, some casual sexual assault. This is just what I was hoping would happen today. (laughs) She was clearly not about it. But I'm just speaking to the idea that once the deed was done, she goes right upstairs to the top of the tower like it ain't no thing and is just chilling. And it's like, I I think that shows us that she's the perfect female counterpart to Tom Hiddleston's character in Lang which makes sense when they end up together for the time being. But like you said, I mean, any power shift will <laughs> divide these star-crossed <laughs> lovers easily. So, you know, I never once thought to myself, oh, good, they got together, you know. So uh, what what do you make of Charlotte? And might I ask, do, is she, do, do you find her to be sympathetic or is she supposed to be? What I guess I have the same question I kind of did with Lang mm-hmm. to you, that what 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 are we supposed to think
0: of Charlotte? I think Charlotte's like ultimately a highly tragic and manipulative character. Like, I think like mm-hmm. from I, I think you're you're right. She's the perfect female counterpart to Lang, and in a lot of respects, she is what Lang would be if Lang had 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 been maybe there and acclimated from day one in the high rise. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's not entirely clear what Charlotte does, if anything, except that she's a bit of a socialite, and it's also not entirely clear who is you know helping her stay because she is she is what two floors up a floor up from yeah yep which means that she is better off because that's how the social stature of the high-rise works so she's of yeah. the higher class not that much higher but she is once again very much like lang fully accepted at the top as a kind of curiosity um as someone that the you know the, the the elites in the building can see as socializing with to an extent without necessarily feeling that they have too much in common with um, yeah like Charlotte like also at the same time though you get a feeling that she is the way she is because of things like what Wilder has done to her it's almost mm-hmm. as if she's desensitized herself to this because she has become this complete object of lust, uh, affection and violence. And as a result of that, she has completely switched herself off to it. The the danger is that in a lot of respects here, she gets ahead, so to speak, by being um, almost unashamedly flirtatious, constantly. And yeah. like all the men that she has interactions with in this one, which you are—I mean, there is very, very quickly a revelation in this in this movie that she's even slept with Royal. Um, yep. And so she's she has slept with the top. Um. And there's a you know there's there's a she is one of the more interesting characters in that. It is not entirely sure what, if any, game she's playing out with to thrive off, very much like Lang, um, the potential anarchy and turmoil that her very presence at the centre of that will cause. Um, and as a result of that, she's a, d- a deeply fascinating character because you should not trust her at all <laughs> like, yeah well said yeah definitely oh, like from the first moment you meet her you should not trust her at all from the first time you see her which is her knocking over the bottle of you know uh, champagne uh, mm-hmm. down and um, you know almost almost hitting poor poor uh, Tom Hiddleston who's you know uh, sunbathing with nothing but a book as you do uh, <laughs> indeed yeah um, like straight away who's beside her but Wilder's beside her and the implication is that they're up there drinking and that's not, you know, <laughs> that's not cool when you've got a wife who's heavily pregnant who's, yep. you know what I mean? like, So like, it's all the way through this movie um, that she is this kind of almost lightning rod for chaos, um, which is oh, why... What, lightning why? rod. Yes. yes. Yeah, lightning rod for... Like, wherever she is, yes. anarchy follows. Like, whether it's, you know, on some level stirring up wilder. There's that, the, the specific scene at the party... Um, she's interacting with Wilder just before Wilder goes crazy. Um, mm. So it's it's implied whether maybe in a way which is not overtly at the front, and maybe you've to fill in the blanks, so or maybe it's my personal opinion, but I, I, I get that feeling that she's she's whispering things in his ear and setting them off, Um oh, sure, just to see. Just to, to sit back and you know well you look at this um she's a, a character that thrives off a scene being made um, of some description uh, like whether it's like a social interruption or a, a kind of domestic interruption um and yeah at the end of this movie like like-minded couples attract my friend this is this is, <laughs> this, is this is this is the power couple for anarchy right there oh yeah and, uh, I, I, I kinda uh, and I kind of love it. Yeah, so that- do I.
1: It, it's 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 not feel necessarily feel good, mm-hmm. but it's like in that way where you're watching a romantic comedy, something from Nora Ephron with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. You're like, yay, they got together.
0: <laughs> There's <laughs> that the bit as well where she says. Um, so he comes through with the like you know he's going to finish eating the dog and all the rest and wait to be welcome that. The, the you know, <laughs> the the residents from the other high rise into their new, uto- their new utopia when that one fails um, yeah. and they sit down and she turns around and says to him uh, are you okay and he's like yeah I've never been there and she's like who are you talking to Um. and the implication is that the entire story that you've just seen is the kind of outward thought narration of an insane man on a balcony, oh, eating a dog. I did not catch that. Yeah, like, like basically that. Everything you've just seen is his retelling, his recount in the time period from the very beginning, where because you open with his narration of you know, yes. uh, Lang has found his place in the high rise, etc., and then you end up back with him continuing the same dialogue. So the assumption is that he has been essentially speaking out loud his memoirs of of what has happened once again solidifying the 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 feeling that robert lang is an insane man
1: (laughs) so you're 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 having likened him to patrick bateman was very apt and i i i really like that and so far I, I love – you are we, – we are tracking so well, and I already know we are going to track for this final character I, I want to highlight here. You've already said it, so I, I – I, and just the, the sentence I have written here, or not written, just kind of uh, – my notes always look – Chaotic, especially when I go on your show, I, I make it a point to barely bring anything because I know that's how you do. And uh whereas, man, on my other shows, I, I've got like paragraphs and, and gra not I don't have graphs or anything and pie charts, but you uh I love the the, idea, <laughs> well,
0: laser pointer pointing at the graph. <laughs> yeah,
1: my laser pointer to myself like I'm laying, but <laughs> just insane talking to myself. I, I've never actually podcasted. This is just me on, on the mic talking to myself. No. The uh <laughs> The, the, okay, so the last character, and you've already said my thoughts on this guy, but we just I, I want to flesh this out just a tiny bit more before we go into what will probably be as we tend to do, you know, maybe a little more into the story and underlying themes yeah. uh, also. But the last character I want to talk about is Royal. And as far as Royal is concerned, you already said it, dude. It's all in his name and in his profession, isn't oh. it? Like, Royal, he's the king at the top and the very literal not figurative. Well, figurative too, but literal architect of everyone's lives here in the tower. He's benevolent to a point in that, you know, he meant for this system be, to be helpful. He did. He says that. He says as much. But he's ineffectual in that he, the, the dude can't even control his own home up at the top, <laughs> let alone the entirety of the building itself. I love the scene where uh, Lang is like, I- is, is that a horse? And he's like, probably. Yeah. I, I I just, I burst out laughing. Uh, You know, and so as unforeseen problems, you know, arise in this building, his building, rather, you know, he's no more capable of bringing order to that chaos than anyone else. And and still, despite those benign qualities, which we do see that, for instance, he saves Lang from getting thrown over the balcony, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's great. That's a great benign quality, you know, even shows like, okay, this guy cares about something and he really does care. I don't think he wants to see this be a failed experiment of a, you know, of of a thing here. But there's a hubris to him too, that is ultimately his undoing. You know, Wilder at the end there literally has a gun in his face, yeah, and and he's just like he doesn't give a damn, and he died for it. And so, I I want to touch on something you said before I ask you just what you think of Royal if you want to put in any more than you already said because I I didn't say anything you already didn't. But I read some review, and I will talk about this in a bit when I think when we start focusing on the underlying theme, and I mm-hmm. I have. A, a, a bullet point that says Snowpiercer in there too, and you beat me too, you <laughs> son of a bitch. But like, <laughs> no. Uh, so I read some review that that tried to paint Royal as God, with mm-hmm. the building being an allegory for the world in which we poor, struggling creations live and fight amongst ourselves. But I don't think that reading holds much water in the long run, and I'm going to get in, into that in a bit. Mm-hmm. But royalty is not a deity. Royal is, uh, royalty. Royal is not a deity. This isn't religious. Royal is the state with a capital state, you already said head of state and mm-hmm. we'll get into that in a bit. Cause I, 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 I want to talk about how this isn't Snowpiercer in a way you already had, and we can kind of have a dialogue about that. But what do you, what do you make of Royal as this building's head of state, as you put it of, you know, of the high rise here, what do you make of him?
0: Yeah. So uh, in, in terms of the, the, use of like the, the head of state um, and, and the use of the name Royal, I mean, that's, that's the, the Royal family in the UK are, are our head of state. Realistically they have a lot of power quote unquote on paper, but don't mm-hmm. exercise any power. Um, they are completely entitled. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> they're born into wealth and that is literally it. They they wave, they smile, that's that's about the extent of it. Um, in terms of like Jeremy Iron's character, he, like Royal wields no real power at all. In this in this structure, interesting. and you can see that very very quickly in the way that his wife manipulates him, and his like just underneath minions like Pangborn, for example, played by James Purefoy, will very very quickly manipulate for their own ends uh, him as a character. It's interesting you were mm. talking about the the benevolent nature of him when it comes to to you know saving Lang. Um, he doesn't save. <laughs> On on one level, yes, he he saves Lang. Do you can you remember what he says to stop them throwing him over the edge?
1: Uh, We we have a game of squash. He owes me a game of squash or something like that. Yeah,
0: that is that's his justification for saving Lang. (laughs) So I mean, so (laughs) do you think he meant that literally? I think he meant that literally. Oh,
1: that's hilarious! I like that a lot
0: because that's how you like when you see how he speaks to every other. Like when they talk about um, like uh, (laughs) killing the horse. Um, later on, uh, you know, they're going to kill the horse <laughs> and eat it. And his, his reply, well, well, the French do it. And, you know, dinner parties don't grow on trees. Um, yep. You know, like, you know, it's a very, very matter of fact. That's the, how his brain has this weird disconnect. Interestingly enough, he is, like... If you were going to do the comparison with God, I think it's tenuous, but I think you can make it. And the reason behind that is, I think... Um, Very much like you said, if you want to go from a biblical point of view, um, Royal builds this world, so to speak, with all the Mm -hmm. best intentions and has an inability to see its flaws. Um, Complete inability to see its flaws. In fact, cannot see its flaws. And as a result, he feels that with one little tweak here or one little tweak there, things will be better without understanding that by its very nature, it cannot work. And the reason it cannot work is that everyone is not equal in the high rise. You're still building in these this class-based system of how things work from the moment they go in. The people on the top floor get to park closer to the building. The people in, you mm. know, the, like the people in um, the top floor get better access to the supermarket. The people in the top floor, like, it's, it's all that way right through it. And as soon as you build that level of not even entitlement, but of kind of elitist structure, you build resentment. And when you build resentment, you build unrest. And when you build unrest, things fall apart. And yep. all it takes is that hair trigger to set things off. In the case of this one, it's power failures. Which, like I say, in the seventies were a real thing. Power was uh, the power demand outweighed um, the ability to make power in the UK, and there was rolling blackouts up and down and strikes, etc. I actually
1: so, did not know that.
0: Yeah, so like uh, the, the the power outages in the seventies are very well documented for civil un- unrest in the UK. Uh-huh caused a lot of issues um and it sparked an entire movement of of art and literature and whatnot as this kind of antagonistic almost anti-establishment um kind of like swell that grows up which i mean a lot of this stuff high rise is born out of that it cannot not be born out of that Um, oh
1: sure knowing that absolutely definitely I, I can see that as just an American who's not of that era. <laughs> sure.
0: Yeah, and, if, and the thing is, as well, is regardless what J.G. Ballard's position was um, mm-hmm. on, or his politics, where I think he documents it well, and I think that's what Wheatley captures very well. I mean, Irons, as a character here, is, like, he, he's he's... Crass without knowing he is crass, he's abrupt without knowing he is abrupt. He's dismissive without knowing he's being dismissive, um, sure. and his overall his overall idea of this utopian society, which will be copied further out beyond this, this idea of the the hand shaped you know buildings these finger shaped buildings yeah. with this uh, lake in the middle which you know like even, even Lang says very very quickly when he sees it, it looks like uh, you know the neurons firing in the brain or something along those lines which like like Royal loves this idea and I think in a lot of ways the fact that Lang specifically tailors his conversation because we said it before he's tall, uh, tailors his conversation to flatter Royal with his description, you know, you, you 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 know, unwittingly, this genius move of creating a, a lake that resembles the brain, or what you know, all these things to yep. to, to play into that uh, speaks, I think, paramount to to royal as a character. I think, like royal, is the the embodiment of not being able to at any point at all see the failure of what he's created because he doesn't understand. How, how, how what it is to be human? He's he's so far removed. There's this sure. there's like a, a great idea of when you are born into money, when you're born into large amounts of money, um, and you never have to fight for it. Money has no value, right? So sure. when you when you've never had to physically work for something, you don't understand why people talk about it. So, or why people obsess about it. Why are, and that's why I think in a lot of respects when you liken something back to the... You remember the, what was it, the 99% movement and, um, mm-hmm. you know, Boycott Wall Street and all the rest and uh, Occupy Wall Street, sorry. Um yep. Where, like, the, the kind of trailing message that come out was they didn't, you know, people with... Like vast amount billionaires basically didn't understand why people would do this. <laughs> like, you can't, like, yeah. Why are they doing this? Uh, because they've never had to worry about where their next paycheck is coming from, or whether they're going to be able to make rent this month, or whether or not they're going to have enough food to put on their table. And when you remove that as a, uh, if you when you remove that as a, a template idea of how your your brain operates or your motivation to do things, I think your mind wanders. Like I think your mind just can't. Royal cannot at any point here, remotely, even in the slightest, sympathize, empathize, or in any way, put himself into the mindset of anyone else in that building. Oh, at for all. sure,
1: and, and 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 to 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 that point, um, seeing royal as God fits, um, it would be, I guess, for me. I don't think it's high a great rise. Yeah, no, I don't think, no, it's, I don't think g- it's great. I yeah, yeah, I think it it it's can great work, analogy. but yeah. I think where it falls apart is when you try to see the high rise representing creation. Yeah, and I guess if we if we want to, because that's where it starts to fall apart for yeah. me. And so, you know, I read a review, and I guess I, if 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 you don't mind, Duncan, can I get into kind of what I uh, sort of let me let me sort of work out what I think the underlying themes here are and, yeah. and, and stuff is, is yeah. that cool if we move yeah. into that
0: I, okay i've got one more thing i want to say about oh, royal and I please do say it this way um, as someone like myself who is artistically minded and does an artistic venture that puts something out there i think royal is the perfect shining example of the obsession to create the perfect thing uh, at all costs, and to the detriment of everything, I think he he is the he is the unattainable idea of perfection personified as a uh, as a character. Like, because uh, he will never he will never succeed, and he thinks the next building's going to be better because you know. And and how many times have we as creative people that do creative things? Uh, obsessed about things which to be honest most people don't care about um with with huge amounts of effort and energy to Hmm. ultimately attain something which is not achievable which is perfection perfection is not achievable and nor should it no so do do you think then uh, does that
1: make him sympathetic in some strange way no No? that's that's the,
0: the the problem would would be uh i think if at the end of this movie if he didn't when faced with a question which is a legitimate question why did you Mm. take my wife if he'd said I took your wife to give her a better life or I took your wife because you're incapable of anything other than I did not take your possessions and how dare you you know like like, and then attack him with a stick (laughs) yeah well he's got a gun on him by the way (laughs) his inability to perceive danger in that situation makes okay. him not a sympathetic character at all. Good,
1: okay, that, that's why I asked that, Duncan, because I was like, huh, because as a creative person, I can see the, I can see these, I have empathy for those creative types who are trying yeah. their asses off, but I, I couldn't extend that to Royal, no, and, and so... I don't
0: think he should either, <laughs> well, so that's a good thing. <laughs>
1: okay, that's why I asked, because I was like, oh, if Duncan is saying he's sympathetic, I, I, I want to hear why, but I was we align there once again, and I'm glad we do. So, uh, you know, we, we talked about royal as god and and i think the analogy half works Mm -hmm. and so you know i read a review a few days ago because i was struggling to you know think okay what do i think about this film because i I, once again like with a field in england i i'm sitting here going hmm okay old mr Mr. watson needs to put my thinking (laughs) cap on so you know i read i took to some reviews all right what are some people thinking here you know and one person was trying to make a point that okay royal's in the position of God who creates the world, creates human beings, and then pieces out, essentially, setting the machine into motion, then allowing things to happen as they will. I was like, okay, I feel you, you know, to a point. I get that. There are, indeed, certain theological viewpoints that see God as divine, yet wholly uninvolved in humanity's affairs. So, if that author of that review was trying to say that we've got this, you know, you know, like you had, you had postulated there, you know, this imperfect God who hits the start button on creation... And mm-hmm. then, you know, maybe he stands by to watch like a maniac or flat out bounces so he can go do some other shit. I'm like, okay, I, I see that to a degree, but like I had alluded to early earlier, the to say that the high rise represents creation though in this metaphor, that mm-hmm. it represents the whole of the world. You started out where I was trying to end. And I love that we were making this loop now. This is folks, this is how professional podcasting is done when you're <laughs> when you're going on the fly like we're doing. This is how you do it. Uh, (laughs) No, I'm not. Not really. But, you know, to to say that the high rise represents the whole of the world, I I can't make that leap. And you Mm. had already said it. So maybe if the high rise were more like the platform 2020, where the the what's the word? Uh, The socioeconomic lines are farther apart and more drastic. But let's face it. You already said it. the populace of the high rise. Is composed entirely of well-to-do white Westerners, you know. So, Yo, yes. <laughs> you know, even the people at the bottom are doing pretty well in the scheme of the the world, you know. I'd say that despite the struggles of the people on the lower levels, because I'm not into comparative suffering, so I think their struggles are apparent and they are legitimate. But despite those, you know, I don't think we get a single example of true abject poverty. We're not we're not given a true scope of creation. In fact, Duncan, you you I I know you noticed this. But in, there are several shots where we see the high-rise itself juxtaposed against the larger city around it that, you know, it exists outside the high-rise's walls. And that right there is why this can't be a fully fleshed-out religious metaphor insofar as that author of that review wanted it to be. Royal, mm-hmm. at least it, as, as that guy was painting it, isn't the god of the creation that is the high-rise. Rather, what you had said at the beginning, he's, he's the head of state. He is the state with a capital state, you mm-hmm. know? And those... People who buy into his political landscape, as it were, are participants in this not religious, but political microcosm to say it's religious, uh, you know, means the analogy can be truly macro in nature Mm -hmm. to say that's to say that you can zoom out as far as you want and the metaphor works. But you can't zoom out very far with what we're given because of who is inside that high rise and most importantly, because of who is not inside that high rise. This is not like you had said, and this is just my my little uh, of all I'm saying here. Here's my one note. I, this is not Snowpiercer, so the picture is too incomplete for us to make accurate statements through the lens of the text about who God is or isn't in the context of creation. It doesn't quite hold water, so you were on it from the start about how what we're looking at here is, I, I think, and and maybe, I believe this is what you were alluding to, we're talking about a disappearing middle class here, aren't mm-hmm. we, and yep. the system that perpetuates that, that act of of, of vanquishing those those people you know we're, we're not we might not be talking about truly destitute people out in the streets you know when we're talking about the lower people in the high rise but we are definitely working with a marxist story template here and i think all those stupid uh, sociology college courses i took back in the day are finally paying off because if i remember correctly the whole textbook definition to some degree of marxism has to do with social conflict and a dialectical view of social transformation. So, we've got our conflict, okay? Obviously, if you're watching the movie, you're seeing the conflict. And as far as dialectics, which that's opposing forces, that's what that means. We've got our bourgeoisie up at the top, our proletariat, so to speak. That's what those roles are in place. So, the classist power struggle about a middle class under fire, I think, is what this is about. And, Duncan, if you think about the French Revolution, you know, in the 1790s, once that middle class was threatened to the point of extinction, I mean, there was no middle class, but once it had gone extinct, chaos broke out and they beheaded their king and queen, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's what beheaded we're looking the, at here. We
0: were saying beheaded the royals.
1: Did you just say that? Oh, they did what? Yeah. And and what happened to royal? Who took royal down? But the mm-hmm. middle class. So, I mean, I'd venture that the core of this film, and you already you basically said this in your opening, and probably, you know, the core of the book as well, it has everything to do with how fragile our uh, uh societal house of cards really is i mean what, what say you am, am i am i on to something i feel like i'm taking longer to say what you already said but just i'm trying to say that we are in full agreement there but please expound upon any that and any other underlying themes that you've noticed cuz that's what i took from the film and that's what like i'm rambling but that's that's where my brain is on fire you set my, you you did this Duncan. you did this <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I think in a lot of respects, the movie can be almost fully summed up by the close of the, the film itself. The, the movie closes um, with with a, a speech by Margaret Thatcher. Um, yes. like Which I think is supposed to date when this is set, which um, if memory serves, the speech is it's either 76 or 77, um, so late 70s. Um I, I think it kind of, it sums up what, well, I mean, you've got to remember the time period as well, uh, when Thatcherism's on the rise, Reaganism is about to, like, take full effect, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the states, and that idea of, you know, the full-flung uh, throes of the free market, which will benefit everyone and everyone will have a better life. And those that are in the working class will be pulled up to the middle class. And those that are in the middle class <laughs> will be pulled up to the upper class. And that's how that's how the system works. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and from our, from, you know, almost from our, I think the name of the speech is... I can never remember the name of the speech, but I'm sure it's something along the the, the lines of uh, the illusions of socialism. I'm I'm sure that's the oh okay gets flung under and the you know the exact quote is you know where she says that there is only one economic system in the world and that is of capitalism. Uh, where there is state capitalism, there will never be political freedom. Um, so, like she like that statement there, I think is the summation of. Mostly the, what you would argue is like extreme teething problems that you experience through that time period and you are 100% right in liking it to this idea of what happens when the, the very fine balance that we are used to, which is not fair, uh, the system is not fair, it's never been fair, never will no. be fair, it's, it's constantly rigged. Um but people can accept it to an extent, but all it takes is the the smallest ripple in order to cause those who you would assume because like the the, the thing is that the ones that do affect real change, and you, you're right in saying that, it's it's kind of morphed over time, but real change is only ever affected when the middle class is involved. When the working class is involved, it's usually met by violence because violence is by default the Tulu the, the the working class and I'm not saying that as an abstract statement historically that has been the case it's been yep, achieved through it. peaceful movement as well but unions so to speak were created for the working class by the middle class um you know they tended they t- or you know from that point of view so what you get in here is the, this idea that when when you know the middle class is involved that's when things start to be affected because they are, for all intents and purposes, the political class for, for the most part. And yep. They tend to be the ones that go into politics and are usually corrupted um, oh, yeah. in, the, in the process quite badly. Um, but so, so, what you get in here is this idea that, that the violent approach to solving that, you know, the riots on the streets, the, you know, the beheadings, if you're going back into you know the time periods of. Of Louis the Fourteenth or whoever it was, um, you know when you go back to that, that you know that that's affected mostly by the the working classes. The working class people that stormed in on the grounds and beheaded anyone with a title, um, and, you know, and brought it back to the people. God damn it, that's what bring it back to the power <laughs> of the people. Um, and that, that, and some reason that, like, the, there is that allegorical sort of connection in high rise about. Once again, we spoke about Wilder as the closest thing you have in here to a working, the working man. You know, this man's yeah. live there doing a, like a like a trade job, and he's although, but at the same time, he is well off enough socially to afford you know a, a apartment in the high rise. Um and bringing in enough money to not only you know drive a relatively decent car, but at the same time yep. maintain a household where his wife doesn't work and has two kind of grown children. So you know there's there's that aspect as well. I think the the kind of class side of things, um, in here is I think is, is that idea of how tenuous all social structures are from those at the top to those at the bottom and the the idea of the like I say it's the powder keg with the, the spark beside it. Um and that spark can be something as benign as you know not having electricity for a little while or not being able to get into a swimming pool. Um yeah. or not having the thing that you want at the supermarket. I mean we only have to <laughs> we only have to look at things now. Um, in today's oh, climate, without yes. without going too like over, like if if we are not living in a, a in a system where you can see how very very quickly people will go feral uh, and storm political buildings with guns uh, oh, yeah. to fight for their freedom, uh, and once again I don't mean that as a dismissive thing in their brain. What they're doing is a hundred percent right, but at the same time, from an outsider's perspective, looking at that. You know you have a roof over your head you have food and uh, you have electricity you have security and all you're being asked to do is wear a mask not for your benefit but the benefit <laughs> and peace of mind of other people uh, is not an affront to freedom <laughs> like, right yeah
1: amazing how that
0: got politicized you know and really fucking fast that got politicized yeah oh yeah really fast but that's how that's how things work and then in the movie linking it back to that the the statement of well if you if you people didn't use so much of the the power mm-hmm. that you know like maybe upstairs would have more power or whatnot the idea of well we're all equal we're all paying the same thing in doesn't preclude the fact that when you see it on that level it is all parties all the fucking time and they like there's music playing there's lights and everyone seems to be straight like that. All the time, so maybe there is, on some rational level, an overuse of the power on the ground, um, okay, as well. So, from a rational point of view, but it's how you word that like you word it, oh, this for way. sure. If you're using all the power, of the upstairs don't like that, there's that as well. So, it's weird because, like, high rise has a very, very clean message about, um, and it's it has that kind of uh, if you're it to other movies, it has that like the the kind of Patrick Bateman American Psycho thing with the, the central character for sure, but it has that yes. dystopian world outlook of something not too dissimilar to something like Clockwork Orange, uh, the Kubrick movie. You know, like there there is that idea of um, you know the if we can just readjust people into or acclimate people into this way of thinking Royal basically says that as such um, you know then everything will be fine, if everyone thinks like me everything will be fine um, <laughs> and you know the, the inability to understand the cause and effect of what you do, it's impact uh, and the, the the actions the reaction on that one uh, with Malcolm McDill being this horrible horrible character but ultimately by being deprogrammed out of that becomes a victim in his own right um, of someone who, you haven't, you haven't solved the problem by, you haven't solved the problem of mindless violence by no. finding someone who commits mindless violence and removing their ability to curate mindless violence. All you've done is created another victim of mindless violence. Um, High Rise has that same perception, but it's from a class position. You don't remove the social class barriers that exist in the world in general by creating a system in place where uh, every floor of a high-rise building uh, is only occupied by a person of a higher class to those below you're essentially creating the same construct in that environment if anything you're creating a more toxic system than that because you're containing any structure which like some of the complaints I spoke about before about the movie specifically were about this idea that anyone can leave at anything. <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> I was just, that was going to be the next question I was going to have, speaking yeah. to the idea of this system that's been put in, into place. Why do you think
0: no one in the high rise leaves? Well, in the, in the book, it's, it's articulated a bit better because this whole thing happens over a period of three months. Like everything we see is over a period of three months well certainly in the book it's over a period of three months I okay. don't know in the movie if they're it. And well no it does see it does jump back three months before at the start Says so three mm-hmm. months earlier so everything we see is over that time period of three months um, I think what is interesting about it is there's a line later on where they're all upstairs uh, and you know they've just finished talking about um, you know like you know there's no food and we're going to eat the horse and, and, and whatnot and uh james Purifoy's character is basically you know has anyone gone to work today <laughs> yeah and they're like no i think we've all called him for leave and he's like yeah good good because the the real job is here the real job is here um and i think that's the the thought behind it is everyone's desire to go to a job is outweighed by their desire to set right the wrongs they perceive in the building so I think okay. that's I think it's not articulated well in the movie and I know why it's a complaint and it's not one that I can necessarily say well Ben Wheatley actually said I can't do that it's, sure yeah it, to me uh, from reading the book it's more clear that people are doubling down in their militant action. Either from the top or from the bottom to affect to change and right the wrongs in the building.
1: Yeah, well, that makes sense too. Because and it's funny that you say that because I, you know, several times we get these shots of the high rise from afar mm. and we see the outer city around as some cars driving. And I just had this kind of funny image in my head of, you know, just driving in my in my normal life, maybe driving by some building in Olympia, Washington, and you know, I have no idea. I'm maybe I'm gonna go to get some sushi. And I have no idea that in that building it's utter chaos and there's a, a power structure going on. And I'm just thinking of some car driving by the high rise, you know, a little bit away. Just kind of, okay, I'm going to uh, hit some McDonald's really quickly and then I'm going to go grocery shopping. and I got to go, oh, the wife said she needed uh, me to go pick up some supplies for the garden. Okay, so I got to do this. And then meanwhile, there's this building over here where this is happening. I'm just thinking... How, how funny that is. Well, this chaos and, you know, people wading through stagnant water, no electricity, mm-hmm. eating a horse and a dog. And meanwhile, somebody half a quarter mile away is like, OK, I better hit hit Jack in the box or Burger King or, you know, better go to the grocery store or, you know, go. ah oh, hey, we're dining out tonight. It's date night. The wife and I. God, I can't stand her. Jeez. I, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Just all the other things going on around it are happening, too. And I just find it funny that so. Uh, yeah that's just kind of a picture i had in my head of you know so so you would say that it's a matter that nobody leaves because of uh, uh, principle i think it's like
0: uh, obsession i think i think people okay. will, with a people with a cause will disregard the important things you become obsessed with the the fight to Oh sure. To change. Uh, yeah. I think that's what it levels up on. The the, the one of the, the greatest shots in this movie, like over, over kind of the, the, the kind of thatcherist tone at the end of, of that speech, is the, the panning camera angle to the remaining high-rise buildings that are being built. And mm-hmm. they don't know. They don't know that Royal's dead. They don't know the anarchy that has happened within this building. And Lang very, very very succinctly spells out that, you know, they don't understand that the, there is chaos about to happen. The same thing will happen yep. again. You can't change it because the, the paradigm hasn't changed. It's still exactly the same thing. And once that disintegrates and crumbles down, the ones that are left from there are welcome to join them in their utopia, um, their insane utopia of dog-eating and death. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like, it's... Uh, It's it's inevitable that that tower will go that way and the tower after it will go that way and the tower after it will go that way and almost it's an indictment on any attempt to create this uh, kind of world structure or building Mm. structure or class structure in any environment which doesn't acknowledge... Uh, the faults that this almost explicitly sets out from the start will be doomed to fail straight from the start so the
1: danger of building the system
0: yes yeah
1: so can i ask you then because i'm left with one i guess final question from listening to you talk here your your interpretation of why they don't leave the high rise Mm -hmm. about this sort of uh, maybe egotistical isn't a a strong enough word, maybe uh, uh, this obsessive, I think, think yeah, the principles there of of dying on this hill, but there, there is a, a, an obsessive and chaotic form of activism at work in response to this corrupt system. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that that doesn't work either. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm sort of wondering, are we, that's a pretty nuanced theme there.
0: Yeah. I like that. (laughs) <laughs> I, also I haven't think, considered that. <laughs> I also think that it's a very difficult message.
1: Well, to Well, it is because look at look at outrage culture. You yeah. know, at 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 the heart, there's something there that is there's a complaint, there is an injustice, and they want to hop on it, they want to right the wrong. But as we've seen, you look at Twitter, it's not real life. It's 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 this tower online and you know and maybe we don't quite have the equivalent of horse eating on twitter maybe we do <laughs> um, but you know maybe we do but the the, the whole deal is that you know that 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 desire to write a social injustice can become a social injustice itself mm-hmm. and that's not something those people want to hear any yeah. more than the people who you know maybe drop outwardly racist or homophobic slurs the the anti pc types that are, you know, oh, yes. hey, I, you know, I'm not I, I can't be offended. Meanwhile, they're just offended at other things. And they're mm-hmm. the other outrage culture. And in a way, you can't tell those people about how their attempt to right a wrong is also a wrong that needs a right. It's not a message that people like to hear or can hear sometimes. Mm-hmm. So yes, the system, the tower, the high rise is corrupt. But I'm I'm obsessive and chaotic in my in my attempts to bring it down, whereas you realize, well now here's the squalor that I've helped create. I'm I'm an agent of chaos too. And that's a nuanced message, like you said, that I don't think is easy to digest, and in that way, it almost makes it harder to digest than something like a field in England. That
0: yeah, <laughs> you know? I think I think that's where like a field in England didn't play in cinemas to a mainstream audience. You know, as I, to, I, like, I wouldn't expect it to, Duncan. It <laughs> led <laughs> to a niche kind of art house indie cinema goer and and those that you know sought out that movie. This movie played you know in mainstream cinemas. And I imagine if you went to see the new Tom Hiddleston romp, uh, you know.
1: Fresh off two Avengers movies and a couple Thor movies, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go and see what Loki's doing in this this, this (laughs) movie in a high rise. And then you're hit with this this nihilistic, bleak outlook that, you know, portrays that the very society that you're in is corrupt and will never work. Uh, And to be honest there's no way to change it, and even if you try and change it, it's ultimately going to fail anyway. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, like, uh, no wonder people come out just going like, you know, I, I don't like this movie, or I don't like this message or I, I can't get behind any characters. There's a lot of reasons behind it. That's not to say that High Rise is a perfect movie. I think no,
1: it's no, for sure,
0: about 20 minutes too long, if I'm honest. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think you could easily and some people would argue against this, but I think you'd easily chop and change or um, almost quantize certain scenes down a little bit into, into we could have a couple of more montages here and less full scenes. I think you could you could get this movie down a bit leaner to, to maybe an hour and 35, maybe even an hour and 40. It's a two-hour yeah, yeah. movie. Um, and like I said before, at about the 40-minute mark, that's when things start to go bad which means you have about an hour and 20 minutes of just spiralling insanity uh, which you know which seldom sees any sort of light at all and at least with some really good dark humour which I think helps it along but I think it's a bit long. That being said though I mean it's not a you know it doesn't put me off watching the movie it's just that to me as, as someone who is um you know, a, a avid movie watcher and getting older, uh, I, you know, I like my movies to be a bit shorter where they can be, um, and I think high rise could be that. Do I begrudge, uh, you know, a, a director of Wheatley's talent wanting to flex his muscles and spend a bit more time in a kind of dystopian alternative, kind of past futuristic hellscape? No, <laughs> like, sure, have, yeah. have at it, sir, but realistically, I, I do. I think, I think it's a High Rise is not the sort of movie. Very similar to to Field in, very similar to Field in England. Very similar to Sightseers. Very similar to Kill List and Down Terrace. This is a movie you need to be in the mood to sit and watch. You can't just throw this one on casually. Um, it, you know, it's just it doesn't lend itself to that. I think the movie is best viewed on this kind of almost tiered level like the high rise itself i think it's an an allegory for for the the many messages that that you can anticipate articulate and digest from it um, it's a it's a layered story. It's a layered narrative. If you go in and watch this on a purely superficial level, it is the most depressing two hours that you're going to watch outside a movie <laughs> like Requiem for a Dream. You know what I, yeah, mean? It's, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like because like at the end of Requiem for a Dream, everyone's fucked in that one as well. Um, it is that sort of you know nihilistic sort of outlook on things. But what's the disturbing thing about it is how much it does mimic what life is like. Even more so nowadays, but it doesn't mimic. And it's what's interesting about it is that it's written in 75 um, and from the author's interpretation and perspective of how he sees things at that time. And here we are in 2020. And it's interesting to see how far we haven't moved <laughs> <like> at all. <laughs> we really haven't changed that much at all, and nope. it, it, it kind of highlights the, the the fact that the, these issues are eternal. And it's why, uh, like, even if it takes forty five years or forty years to adapt this novel, it's just as relevant nowadays as it's ever been. And I think that's I think that's the key. I think Wheatley is the perfect director to bring it to the screen. Um, Indeed. And, and it's before, like, as a, as a parting shot, this, like, the repeated use of the song S.O.S. by ABBA, and here, and that was written in the year that the book was written, 1975. Um, oh. So, so and, but the, the lyrics to the song is, you know, S.O.S., it's crying out for help. It's a song about crying out for help and for love, and... Um, and, you know, it, it's, it, I think it's covered about two or three times in the movie. It's done as a kind of string quartet. Porous Head covers it, which is one of my favourite colours. Yes. They're uh, it was great. So fucking good. Um, but th- that's all playing through this movie as well as like the backdrop. And you get this whilst, you know, you're watching this incredible set design and amazing cinematography, which is Kubrickian at times with its, you know, uh, you know, steady cam wide shot, you know, shots of corridors and hallways and, the, the you know, the building itself is this kind of almost, once again, thinking Kubrickian, this almost monolithic structure. At the same time, you, there are elements of this movie which have, you know, almost like 2001 A Space it like the scenes with the kaleidoscope. Are just things of sheer beauty, you know, like the scene where Wilder being essentially dispatched, while this kid looks through a kaleidoscope, while SOS plays in the background. <laughs> yeah. It's just like you know, like your, your face melts like that did from Indiana Jones watching it. It's just it's it's, <laughs> it's Wheatley just slapping his massive art house cock on the table. And just, dem- yeah, like, yeah, just demanding <laughs> that you count the veins—that's like literally—it's <laughs> it's, so—it's so in your face and so just over the top, and I, it's so beautiful to look at, and it like—it just reminds me why, like this is why, like this is why I love him as a director. One of the worst things I ever like—I don't often get dragged in the interme- internet arguments. Um, I, I don't, I just, I don't see the point. No, you of don't? That. I don't. I try and distance myself deliberately from it. Um, but I, when this movie came out, there was a, a podcaster who does not listen to this. So, and I won't name his name either. Cause sure, you know, uh, but, um, it, I've just seen high rise. Here's, here's my, here's my one line review. Uh, here's another movie made for hipsters. Ah. And I, I I went back and was like, care to elaborate? <laughs> oh yeah, pretentious, up its own arse, you know, um, playing to that hipster culture of you know social justice warriors, um, and you know, like a, a kind of a superficial idea of class or something else like that. Could not disagree with you more right now. And also, wait, they, th- this person thought it played.
1: To social justice
0: warriors? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, this this person needs to listen to what we just talked about. (laughs) Yeah, I was was like that. I was like, could not disagree with you more. Um, Yeah, uh, like like like. And also, I have to, I have to wonder if you have a like a proper grasp of what (laughs) hipster culture actually is. Sure. Um, but yeah, like that. And the more I read about the movie from reviewers when it first came out. Um, the people that I feel didn't enjoy it I feel personally and like I said movies are subjective and all, all the best you take it in your opinion but I think people are approaching it from the wrong perspective, from the wrong angle and I think if you do approach the movie from the wrong angle um like this is a preachy movie from a director that says the working you know like all yeah. this stuff uh, if you're approaching it from that perspective then you will not enjoy High Rise because it almost feels like the director is deterring any sort of um, protest or shake up to the system and that is not the case at all that not is a, not, yeah. not Ben Wheatley and I just felt like I, I felt like I wanted to fling that at the end I think it's like I say I think it's a, a, a great fucking movie it showed what what he could do with a massive budget, how he managed to get it financed to still be on me. <laughs> like, right? Wow. I'm going to make this movie that no one's been able to make for 45 years. With all these A-list stars, which will get me the money through the door. But by the way, there's no happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> so, um, yeah. It is what it is. I think it's a fascinating bit of cinema though. And even kind of coming back to watch it, Uh, this time around um, Mm -hmm. it finished and I do I I feel drained mentally for watching it but at the same time I I look at it as this this great little bit of art that he's constructed which you know we've talked about it for an hour now uh, here we go over an hour and I I still feel that you know if we wanted to go another hour we probably could we'd be repeating a lot of the same things we would yeah I don't think we would be. I don't think we'd be any dumber for doing it, and I think that's a testament to a really <laughs> cleverly constructed story.
1: Indeed, and I think the listeners get the idea.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe, hopefully, they better. No, I think, I think, I think, what you will find is there's going to be a lot of people on this episode in particular that are going to say, "I don't like this movie," and you know what? I'm fine with that.
1: Well, you know, and 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 here's the thing, and you you had talked about people approaching films. From a wrong or, or maybe an incorrect standpoint, and you know, mm. I, I have found that a, a recent time where I did this was for the Neon Demon. When yes. I saw that movie initially in twenty sixteen, I hated it. I, I rate, not hated, I gave it a four out of ten. Which for me, a four out of ten on my by my rating scale means it's average. I didn't, I, I it just falls just negative of my neutral five. So it's like, meh, it's 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 fine, Meh, blah, but like. Mm-hmm. I then 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 what happened was, you know, now we're in 2019 and Dave Z start the Watsy Party Horse Show and it falls to him to our coin toss goes and he picks the Neon Demon. I'm like, shit, this movie. Oh, I know Dave like blows that movie like crazy. I'm like, ah, well, I guess, you know, I I, I guess I'm going to have to. I I wrote all these notes about, well, sorry to do this to my my beloved co-host, but I got to blow him out of the water here. I hate to do this to my buddy, but here we go, because I had this interpretation of the movie that I felt was, oh, Refn's trying to say that this is a movie all about the corruption of Hollywood and blah, blah, blah. Well, then I read an interview with with Refn and he's not saying that at all. He's basically saying, no, this is about embracing egotism and about being an asshole and about doing this stuff. And, and suddenly I was like, all right, I got to watch this movie again. Mm. Watched it again for the show and was like, okay, my initial viewpoint where I saw all these flaws in the way this movie did not work suddenly went out the window. And I had to go, well, in the scheme of what we, not Wheatley, with, with what Reffin was saying about his, you know, where he's going with this, his message of the Neon Demon about being, embracing your egotism and that, how beauty is what it is and not about the dangers of the fashion industry. It's not about that at all. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, this movie's brilliant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so no, no. sometimes it is about adjusting, you know, to what the movie maybe is really saying. And yeah, we... As critics, Duncan, yes, we we've talked about this before. How we come at an art piece with our interpretations, and sometimes they fit, sometimes they don't. But when it is, we're blessed in the internet age to know sometimes what the intention of a film is, and if we come at it from that wrong, wrong, uh, another, you know, subjective perspective, and go uh, against that, I guess pre-established sort of meaning, that we can find our critiques maybe aren't don't line up because. We're not up to the task, and sometimes yep. I do believe that falls to the critic. Not everything I, does, but sometimes it does. So that, I just I, wanted to put that out there because I love what you said.
0: Yeah, I also think at times like directors can go in with the best intentions of conveying a message, but just not do it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Refn did though. Yeah, I, I think so. I think like the Neon Demon is a movie which I think in time will be seen as the the the, the genius bit of cinema. Actually, as it works on many many levels and is damn near um, I mean I've, I've, I don't know if we've ever spoken to this before it's a witch movie like that is that yep. is that's my opinion it Is 100% they, they are a coven of witches and I I, quite, I have like pages and pages not written down in my head obviously because I don't take notes but pages no, you, and pages you of, <laughs> in of, your of, notes of of, 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 of points in the movie
1: which 100% back up that. Well Dave Z agrees with you completely and, and you know as as you, you might know mapped that out in episode 3 of, of, oh, yes. of our show it's and I face. couldn't believe his interpretation of that. I had never thought that. I saw occult imagery and we're not going to get into a thing of the neon demon here but this is rather about approaching film and I hope you know, just just to, I guess to get off that because, Duncan, I, I think we could get into a neon demon thing here. And, and <laughs> well, I'm going to call again. Dave because I know what he's doing right now. But <laughs> actually, he's probably getting getting ready for bed. But the the whole thing is that I, I would hope that the the listeners hear what we're trying to say and, and, and you know, trying to get out this. See, see how the film is conveying this nuanced message. Is it fully successful in that? Mm-hmm. I think it is more than it's not. If I'm going to, you know, really just put my...
0: I would cards 100%. out
1: here as though I haven't already you know sort of maybe alluded to the fact that I did really enjoy this movie and so yeah I think it does and I think if you can track with it on what it's really trying to say not oh it's anti-social justice or it's pro-social justice or it's promoting the system or it's you know d- it, it, what we've listen to what we've talked about here and I think if you can track with that if you can watch and go oh I see that you might have a, a good chance at really enjoying this and or, or if not enjoying it at least understanding it for what it's trying to be and what I think it is, you know?
0: Yeah, I think you're. I think you're 100 right. I, I couldn't agree with that statement more. I think cool. the movie is not 100 percent perfect. I think oh, but no, no. When when it when it sets out its points, I think it tries its hardest to get them, and it achieves many more of them than it gets. It gets wrong, um, which brings us to yep. our eternal question in the go. old Opera Omnios series. Here is that after watching High Rise. Is it the best Ben Wheatley movie or is Kill List still reigning at the top for both of us? I will preempt you slightly slightly and say that yeah, I think High Rise has a little bit of runtime issue. I think it runs maybe about 20 minutes long. And yeah, I think there are some things that uh maybe not explained in a way which feels entirely satisfying and it's a dense book to put on screen there's a reason it was claimed as being unfilmable but that being said I think Ben Wheatley made about as best a, an adaptation as you're ever going to see. Kill List is still a better movie for me. Kill List, we've spoken about it before. It's lean, it's mean, um, and yeah, it, it is still at the top of my weekly list. High Rise, though, ain't no slouch. What about yourself, Mister Watson? Are you are you uh, converting to the Church of High Rise? Are you staying <laughs> with your heathen opinions and the in the, in the, in the 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 pagan worship of of a uh, Kill List?
1: Well, I guess uh, I, I will embrace my inner heathen because Kill List does still reign supreme for me, buddy. Uh, but, dude, I quite enjoyed this film, man, and more upon talking it out with you. I And, and listen, I, I'm beside myself right now with how aligned we are on this film. I've not mm. had enough podcast experiences like this where it literally felt like we're sitting down together for a whiskey or six, just talking <laughs> it out while the jukebox plays. I, I've mm-hmm. had a blast here, buddy, but Kill List reigns supreme
0: nice nice right Uh, which means we're going to bring this episode in thank you very much for checking it out we will be back next month though with our second last in the series now I've already said before we will run another episode the month after as a recap Basically looking back over time, discussing Ben Wheatley overall, and maybe taking a, a quick eye over future projects for the man himself. But we have two more movies to attend to. The next one couldn't be any more different if it tried. We are going into the kind of 70s shoot 'em up action comedy caper uh, that is Free Fire also set in the 70s Uh, this one in Boston this time Free Fire came out in 2016 um, another one that I saw with Ben Wheatley in attendance and jeez got, you Yeah, no, <laughs> asked him a question at this one got another t-shirt so there we go uh, the synopsis for this one to look forward to is set in Boston in 1978 a meeting in a deserted warehouse between two gangs turns into a shootout and a game of survival wait to check the cast list for this we have Sam Riley Michael Smiley uh, Brie Larson this was before Brie Larson hit the big time okay. uh, Cillian Murphy Army Hammer Charlotte Copley um, Jack Rayner uh, Patrick Bergen just a lot of Jeez. names and faces that when you see you'll be like Haha, wait one second I know a lot of people here <laughs> uh, I will say this uh, um, uh, Copley's performance and High Rise is nothing short of fucking genius And be prepared to to fall in love with that man Over and over again Everything he's done I've loved it since District 9 um, And oh, okay. he, he, he fucking nails it in this one as well But yeah that is where we're going In one month's time Mr Watson you do fantastic things On other shows out there that people should be checking out oh, yeah. Let them know where they can be
1: checking them All right. Well, first and foremost, you and I have a few future dates under the stairs. Uh, I'll be joining (laughs) you to round out your franchise Russian roulette shows on the Phantasm series Mm -hmm. where you and I are going to cover Phantasm Ravager. That's the fifth installment. And then after that, of course, I've joined the, and I'm happy to have been uh, inducted into this, I've joined the illustrious Teapot Summer series and have a couple episodes lined up there. However, you schedule that, and I can't wait to hear more of the details about the the amount of shows there are that they're the one for each of the years I got and then of course the round table and one or a couple round tables however you do it I can't wait dude I'm I'm super stoked and uh, stoked and can't wait to dive into all that delightful goodness so mm-hmm. folks you can expect Duncan and uh old Mr. Watson here to be teaming up a uh, a number of times in the near future so as for my usual shows though you can hear me on one of my uh, as one of the new co-hosts on one of my favorite horror podcasts ever the cast where it's all killer no filler I'm I've been happy mixing it up with those fine folks. Uh, Our latest episode, as of this recording right now, we covered The Quiet Ones 2014 and The Lodge 2020. And I believe, I I really think it's the best episode I've personally taken part in with them since I joined. So if if you search the Whorecast, listen to those reviews. I'm really proud of what we did on that show. And you won't regret that treasure trove of a podcast. But my main business, though, is the Watsy Party Whore Show. I'm Mr. Mm -hmm. Watson. I'm the Watt. My co-host Dave Z is the Z, and together we're the heads of state, or the royal, <laughs> as it were, of the Watsy Party. And our Watsy Party Horror show can be broken down into three acts. Act 1, we have fun going over the monthly horror movie releases. Act 2, we dive deep into a horror-related topic of discussion. And then in Act 3, we provide an in-depth review of a horror film of our choosing. And if you've heard my past work on my old solo cast Horror Corridor or, and if you've heard Dave Z on his many other awesome shows, uh, I'm, I'm about to make a bold claim here, but I truly believe that he and I are doing our very best work as far as film critique goes on the Watsy Party Horror Show. So we we get deep, folks, and we make sure to have a blast all the while. So you can find us on horror, the horphelia Podcasting Network at Horphilia.com or just Google it, you know, just type, you know, get on your podcasting app. W-A-T-Z-E-E, watc and you'll find us right there. We're the only thing that comes up when you do that. So that's all I got, folks. Duncan, thanks, man, damn it, once again for having me. It's always a pleasure working with you, and every time we record together, we hit the button, and I've just got this psychotic looking perma smile on my face the whole damn time thanks so much dude
0: (laughs) always a pleasure man always a pleasure and i can't wait to to return um, for for more ben weekly but like you say we've got business under the stairs and i can't wait to finally introduce you to the the listeners over on that feed because i know they're gonna fall in love um and yeah uh, that falling in love is awesome Right, (laughs) ladies and gents, thank you very much for checking out another episode of Opera Omnia. One month's time, back with a little movie called Free Fire. Until then, please take care of yourselves out there and we will catch you next time. (laughs)